0: Hello Rebecca Rodil here, thank you for all your support so far. I won't keep you long but I just wanted to mention a couple of things. First I've just launched a Patreon account which is patreon.com forward slash killing underscore time where you can support the work we do and get access to some additional benefits. Second if you like the podcast it would mean the world if you could let everyone know by giving us a five star review on iTunes or whichever other platform you're listening on. Anyway on with the show. Welcome to Killing Time, the podcast that investigates the darkest moments in our past to shine a light on wider histories. I'm Rebecca Radeal and I'll be your guide. Sit back, relax, and listen as we delve into episode four the death of Vice Admiral Nelson. It's the 21st of October, 1805, and off the coast of southern Spain, a huge naval battle is unfolding. The air is thick with smoke and the noise of cannon fire. On board the French ship the Redoutable, a sniper homes in on a man adorned with medals and pacing the deck of the enemy ship, HMS Victory. Locking in on his target, the sniper fires his musket and a bullet speeds towards the Victory, finding its mark. Vice Admiral Horatio Nelson slumps to the floor, fatally wounded. Norfolk in 1758 to a vicar and his wife, Nelson came from what we might describe as the middling sort. He attended grammar school and then went to sea as an ordinary seaman in his early teens, working his way up through the ranks through merit and skill. By 1805 Britain and her allies were two years into what would become known as the Napoleonic Wars and Nelson was one of the most celebrated naval figures in British society. Losing his right arm in battle in 1797, he'd achieved great victories during the Battle of the Nile and the Battle of Copenhagen. I speak to Dan Snow about the events that led to his infamous death. Dan Snow, thank you for coming on this brand new podcast.
1: Well, it's the least I can do. You've been on my podcast a thousand times, so, you know, well... payback times, payback time, <laughs> Snow.
0: But it is kind of daunting asking you questions this time around because it's usually the other way um but you are well obviously... it's daunting
1: for me because everyone thinks that's the problem everyone's like oh you've got all this history I'm, I'm like do you ever listen to the podcast i don't know any of the history everyone else comes on and tells me the history so you're gonna ask me some stuff now so i'm terrified
0: yeah yeah okay well we're here to talk about the death of horatio nelson
1: oh we are yeah
0: this is such a an iconic moment in british history and our collective memory of our past and it comes with so much baggage and um nuance and all of that but i just thought we'd just go straight into the actual incident and kind of unravel what happened and then look at the wider impact first of all i just wonder if you could paint a picture of the build up to the battle of trafalgar and what had been going on a little bit before and you know where they are at sea What's happening and what's the end game?
1: Well, it's actually strangely complicated, the Battle of Trafalgar, because most people think it's about the French and Spanish allies setting off and trying to land in England and conquer the UK. That's actually not, unfortunately, that's kind of not what it's really about. It's all been quite heavily mythologised. But Mm -hmm. what actually happens is that Nelson is in charge of blockading this French and Spanish fleet in the Mediterranean. And then... He does, for example, they they escape from from blockade. Nelson's commanding the Mediterranean fleet on HMS Victory, he chases them across the Caribbean, he searches for them in the Caribbean and then the French head back to Europe. Now that is the key moment, that is the moment at which the French could have gone up and joined Napoleon who's sitting in Calais and Boulogne with this big army ready to attack uh, the UK Mm -hmm. and at that moment Nelson has actually been almost kind of given the slip really and so it actually falls to a different Admiral There's there's a small sharp skirmish called the Battle of Cape Finisterre which dare we whisper dare we whisper is probably more strategically important the Battle of Trafalgar but that is obviously heretical that's heretical stuff in the UK (laughs) and so the French and Spanish fleet they're convinced not to keep going after this skirmish and they then head back to uh, Spain where it's now late summer of 1805, and it's slightly unclear what the French and Spanish are going to do. The situation in Europe completely changes. The Russians and the Austrians basically declare war on Napoleon, and so he secretly abandons his bases in northern France, his invasion ports, and he does one of the most extraordinary marches across Europe, which will eventually culminate in the Battle of Austerlitz in December of that year, one of his greatest victories. He annihilates the Russians and the Austrians. So it's a complicated to picture, but the French and Spanish fleet... Decide they will put to sea in October. Now, it's not, it's sort of slightly kind of questionable why they do this. They appear to do it because they want to go and intervene in Mm. uh, southern Italy. So they're not actually going, again, whisper it, they're not actually going towards the English Channel, but they're going to intervene in southern Italy. And it also appears that the admiral in charge of the French and Spanish fleet realised he was about to get fired, so he just kind of wanted to go to sea and just do something, right? Yeah. Um, But this is great, because Nelson's waiting for them outside Cadiz, and they walk straight into Nelson's trap. I mean, it is an astonishing... I mean, this is... The Battle of Trafalgar is a very weird one. So a French and Spanish fleet, for no powerful reason, leave Cadiz woefully underprepared. You know, some of the ship's just full of impressed i.e. forced sailors who just on sweeps of the neighbouring areas around Cadiz. They can't...
0: Oh, so they're new recruits? They're
1: basically new recruits, yeah. Oh, wow. Some of the Spanish ships are saying to sea with, like, supplies piled on the deck because they can't work out where to put all the food and stuff like that. I mean, they're a woefully unprepared fleet. And off Cadiz, just over the horizon, Nelson has hidden his fleet, which is the finest weapon of war that any navy has ever sent to sea. They've spent a generation... At war, they know every inch of those ships. They know what to do. They know how to trim the sails, fight the cannons. They are supremely trained and ready for battle. So, despite the fact he's got, I think, about twenty-seven battleships, and the French yeah. have got the French and Spanish got slightly more. They're not that evenly matched, really. The British are uh, huge favourites, if you like. And the French and Spanish just simply sort of sail out and. I always think they almost present themselves for destruction at the Battle of Trafalgar. And Nelson is able to use very, very aggressive tactics. People may have heard of the famous tactics that Nelson uses at Trafalgar when he... What you tend to do with fleet actions is you just sail your ships in a big, long line along their big, long line. And all all the cannons which point... At ninety degrees to your direction of travel, because of course you know they, they point down the sides of the ships. So you're going forward; they point sideways. You then just grind past each other and blast each other bits, and it's a brutal and attritional business. Nelson decides he's actually going to head straight for the line, and and try and precipitate a general melee, a kind of chaotic, insane bar fight, because he knows that one of his ships is worth two of theirs. So he actually wants order to break down and for it just to turn into a, a kind of giant. Bar fight, where his ships will have an enormous advantage because they can fire more and heavier and quicker than than their enemy. Right. So that's why you get this amazing moment where... HMS And of course Nelson says, and, and his captain so well that's quite dangerous, because the, the first ship in each, there are two columns of the English ships heading straight at the Spanish and French. They're going to head straight to the heart of them rather than work their way along the line. And it's very dangerous, so of course Nelson puts himself and HMS Victory at the front of the line and insists on leading the men, and insists on wearing all of his medals, quite vain. He wanted his men to see him, he wanted the enemy to see him. He's festooned with various bizarre British and... Uh, Neapolitan, Southern Italian sort of mad medals and decorations. He called himself, we all call him uh, Viscount Nelson, he called himself the Duke of Bronte because he'd been given a dukedom by the (laughs) the Bourbon kings of Southern Italy. So he sort of had his various bizarre things. And also they're going really slowly, they're going a couple miles an hour because there's hardly any wind. So the French and Spanish are able to fire all their guns all along the side of their ships at these approaching British columns of ships, and the British aren't really able to fire back. So HMS Victory and Nelson take an absolute pasting in this very bizarre, creeping um, moment when, when the two sides are heading towards each other. And then... HMS Victory crashes through that Spanish and French line and then the shoe's on the other foot because suddenly HMS Victory's guns can fire both sides and the French and Spanish ships are hugely vulnerable to that. And the slaughter is extraordinary. I mean, we're talking First World War levels of casualties on these ships. Cannonballs blasting through thick wood cause immeasurable damage themselves, but they send razor-sharp, foot-long splinters scything through the air, capable of you know cutting people in half. So the descriptions of the battle are, are, are terrifying.
0: Well, this is one of the things that, because I've studied earlier warfare in the 1660s, but this is one of the things that before I came to this subject, I never really thought about. But of course, most of the injuries I imagine that are sustained by people in naval warfare are actually just by bits of your own ship inserting themselves into your body.
1: Totally, just as you saw, you know, you see in Hellman, the recent. Uh, losses in Hellman you see so much of when you watch those TV shows they're always talking about it's the the dust it's the grime it's the muck that's blown into the wounds along with the you know the explosive or the the shrapnel that actually does most of the damage so yeah completely it's the pieces of ship wood uh, and and other material just flying around those gun decks.
0: So Nelson made his will before this battle started was this unusual do you think he thought that the chances of his death were particularly higher during this battle than on other occasions i don't know it's always
1: tempting isn't it after the event to say that someone had a sort of premonition of their own death i mean i think if i was an admiral and i was covered in medals and i had to stand rooted to the quarterdeck and not flinch while an enemy ship was about 30 meters away bristling with people trying to shoot me i suspect i would think i was going to die but there is of course there's a romantic suggestion that he knew that after this if his plan was executed correctly which it pretty much was Mm -hmm. it would remove the french spanish naval threat for years to come and so yes perhaps he thought well what a great time to die i mean i we don't really have any evidence of that but i I think they would have made their wills anyway but it it was an incredibly dangerous business and as we'll see he was right to worry because the the french in particular they used to put a lot of sharpshooters we might call them snipers now up in the rigging of the ships to try and you know single out important officers or key personnel on the decks below. You know, that was a known tactic. So it was a a dangerous business.
0: That brings us nicely on to his, you know, the moment of his death. And, you know, you mentioned that he's there with all of his medals. And I think he makes the comment, there's no time to change his coat now. But what happened? It was at one o'clock, wasn't it, that he was injured. But could you describe the incident?
1: Oh, I could with tears in my eyes, I'll describe it. It's amazing. So, I mean, we know it's dangerous, but a cannonball chops his secretary in half. He was dictating the sort of course of battle to his his administrative assistant, and and the poor man was chopped in half and hurled overboard. Um, His shoe got... uh, I think it was his shoe, or perhaps it was Captain Hardy, who was actually captain of HMS Victory, standing next to him. The buckle got hit by some shrapnel. And I think Nelson at that point says, you know, this is too warm to last long. You know, it was clear that this battle was reaching a kind of mighty crescendo, and one side had to break, because it was physically humanly impossible that the the intensity of violence could be sustained. And so the, the British HMS Victory moves across the stern. I mean, this is the thing that no captain ever wants to happen. If you think of those magnificent ships like HMS Victory, those ships of the line, Mm -hmm. those battleships, they hold enormous windows at the back, if you think about it. Yeah. So if you manage to shoot a cannon from the stern, the cannonball will go the length of the ship and kill and maim countless people on the way. And HMS Victory, with double-shotted cannon, fires a mighty broadside into Beausanture, the French ship. And just, like, eviscerates, the, you know, just smashes the crew. And then the French ship Redutabla comes alongside, and there's this extraordinary battle between Victory and Redoutable, and Victory... Causes unimaginable casualties to the Redoubtable's crew, who are massing to, to surge across and try and board. You know, to fight hand to hand on the deck, and the Victory fires these two quite new guns called carronades, which fire enormous projectiles at quite low velocity, so good for short range, mm-hmm. and just causes again. You know, the casualty figures we'd expect from a First World War battlefield, and then at one o'clock, Hardy looks round, and Nelson's kneeling on the deck. He's kneeling on the quarter deck, and he then falls onto the spot, which you can now go and see on HMS Victory. There's several accounts of this.
0: Horatio Nelson was no fool and must have known he'd be an identifiable target for the French snipers. His injuries were fatal. When Captain Thomas Hardy reached him, Nelson declared, Hardy,
1: I do believe they've done it at last. My backbone is shot through. I love this. That he personalised it. Yeah. Like the French in a sort of battle with him personally. And he, he correctly identifies that he goes, My backbone shot they've shot my backbone through. And he, he did get shot. It passed through uh, his spine and lodged in his lung. And so for the next hour or two he was basically drowning to death on his own blood. He he's carried downstairs and he puts a handkerchief over his face so that the men don't see that it's him but he does he gives a few instructions to a few junior officers he sees on the way down you know professional to the last
0: goodness so he's still kind of giving his orders out as he's dying
1: yeah well, very much so in fact the, the surgeon rushes up when they get below the waterline to the kind of all up deck which is where the supplies are and where they take all the wounded in the battle there's a surgeon down there kind of chopping arms off and chopping legs off and administering very primitive or you now consider very primitive battlefield triage and the surgeon rushes up to him and he just waves him away and says no no point don't worry about me i'm dying
0: but he's a man that knows injury as well so he would have been acutely aware of the situation i imagine
1: yeah well he lost an arm uh and an eye but he lost, well, his arm was good when they chopped his arm off he he remained sober and awake throughout and merely commented that the blade was cold and so he's you know been savagely mutilated um in in service of, of king and country so he's and you're right you know th- there is a i mean there's a suggestion that you know, he'd been very lucky to survive several several battles and military mm. operations. I mean, he's very lucky to survive in Central America. Huge fatalities around disease. He lucky survived that expedition. In, in near Panama, he lost an arm and eye. He'd served in various fleet battles. He's, he's narrowly avoided being his secretary was cut in half beside him, so perhaps there was an acceptance there. And although clearly the Nelson hagiography, like the Nelson sort of mythologizing began well before he was dead, yeah, so it's, you have to be quite cautious with all the, the source material, but they all present him as being very calm and accepting in the last few hours.
0: And is there any truth to these infamous words, kiss me hardy and all of that? I mean, are these stories that have emerged afterwards or is there any evidence that they were said at the time?
1: Yeah, I mean, we think that several people left accounts of that last moment. I mean, because Nelson was famous before and then became a sort of semi-deified figure afterwards. So because of Nelson's fame, lots of people wrote I think the ship's chaplain, I think one of the uh, sort of orderly officers, like a, a guy, like a purser or something. Of course, they don't have a huge amount else to do during the midst of battle because uh, they're not fighting officers. So they they were round Nelson. So there's lots of accounts of it. And he did, I think, ask to be kissed on the shoe. He said, Kiss me, Hardy, the captain. And the one that's quite, you know, people love talking about is that when Hardy basically said the French and Spanish fleets are all sort of surrendering, you can see their flags coming down and the battle's dying down. We've won the battle. Yeah. And Nelson said, Thank God I've done my duty. And then he dies, kind of I think you know he's about he's about two or maybe three hours, I think it was um between being shot and dying, so pretty I mean unimaginably grim,
0: goodness me, and then of course we have the stories about his body being put inside a casket and taken back to Britain. There are infamous stories about you know people drinking from that, but um yeah, what yeah. was the <laughs> what well, we won't go into that here, but what was the impact? Of his death in Britain at the time.
1: Well, his death was combined with this kind of catastrophic defeat of the French and Spanish that basically saw French and Spanish sea power just completely hobbled. And it was the last big fleet action of the Revolution and Napoleonic Wars. I mean, Britain was hegemonic at sea before that, but it just confirmed that hegemony. And it meant that really any talk of Napoleon ending the war by striking at his critical enemy, which is Britain. Britain was the paymaster. Britain was behind all the various alliances that Napoleon fought. It was the one who wrangled these deals, who paid for Pomeranian grenadiers and and kept the Russian armies in the field, just shoveling money uh, towards allies. And so for Napoleon to beat the British, he needed to invade, effectively. And he couldn't after 1805. He he struggled before, but he certainly couldn't after 1805. So he then Mm -hmm. embarks on other measures, for example, a continental economic blockade. And then he actually invades Russia. Napoleon invaded Russia because he thought the road to London lay through Moscow. So he could knock Britain's potential ally, the last surviving ally on the continent, out, close Russian exports, to deny Russian exports to Britain, and then hopefully turn on Britain and finally crush it. So it was an enormous victory, but it was also a huge sense
0: of loss. The death sent shockwaves throughout Britain. George III was reportedly in tears when he exclaimed, we have lost more than we have gained. The task of notifying Nelson's partner, Lady Emma Hamilton, fell to Captain John Whitby, who travelled to Merton in November to inform her. Recalling the moment he broke the news to her, Lady Hamilton later wrote, Whitby was unable to speak. The tears in his eyes and a deathly paleness over his face made me comprehend him. I believe I gave a scream and fell back. And for ten hours after I could neither speak nor shed a tear.
1: I am as cynical as the next guy, but the accounts of Nelson, like, you know, you've got bedraggled, grizzled seamen who've been around Cape Horn three times, and you think they're not going to shed a tear for any old person. I think just people breaking down when they heard that Nelson did. I mean, he did. He seemed to have an extraordinary natural charisma Mm -hmm. and effect on people that was sort of mystical, really. I mean, I've always, unsurprisingly, he's always been one of my historical dinner party guests. I'm fascinated by him and his ability to... Generate sort of loyalty, Um, and so George III, the king, apparently wept. Universally, people said it was a splendid victory, but people said we've lost. You know, but we've without Nelson, we've lost more than we gained, which of course wasn't really true because the Battle of Trafalgar meant there was no need for Nelson. Right. And also the point about the Royal Navy is that it's like a good system doesn't rely on individual genius. So actually, you, the whole point about the Royal Navy is it was a tool that didn't need a Nelson to wield it. Yeah. It helped that Nelson came along, but Admiral Jarvis would have won the Battle of Trafalgar. You know, there, there were a dozen other admirals who were just as effective, if that's has been a bit heretical to say. But arguably against the, say, in the 16th century, Sir Francis Drake is kind of critical to the success or failure of expeditions because it's all a bit shambolic and you need a Drake. By the 19th century, you don't need a Nelson. Yeah. Because the institution, the system is so incredibly strong and able to just churn out professionals at at every level
0: but I guess what Nelson achieved was um he's as you've said he's been mythologized and has become a national hero for better for worse and whatever your views are of him he is a, a huge figure in British history and that I guess is one of his main legacies as well
1: yeah it's interesting it's that's because individuals are sexier than institutions, right? And it's a funny thing we talk about statues, that won't putting up statues. But putting up statues to people is such an old-fashioned idea, isn't it? Like, who are going to put a statue up to? <laughs> because what you want in the current pandemic crisis is a health service that is, like, unbelievably resilient and just works and doesn't have to rely on some individual doing some heroic shit to like save the day because that implies the system is not working yeah and actually you see that again during the kind of battle of britain where the genius of the battle of britain was this very uncharismatic and unshowy sort of very geeky system that was built this kind of giant and brilliant system that was built to defend airspace over britain before the second world war but it's easier to talk about these aces oh this guy's an ace he shot down three planes you know that's fine of course you need that current heroism but you slide that into a system that allows that to flourish And it means that your national survival is not dependent on like Horatius on the bridge or like William the Marshal just kicking some ass in the 13th century. (laughs) National survival was dependent on paying lots of money through long-term borrowing funded by taxation overseen by Parliament to pay for a really, really good navy that was well supplied, had professional exams, was freer from nepotism and sort of capricious rule than other institutions at the time. And where good quality people could get promoted and reach positions of authority that's why Britain wins the war at sea but it's easier for us to go Nelson and like go completely mad and collect locks of his hair and and the point is it's great that that's the happy combination you get a Nelson and the, the highly effective Royal Navy and you live in the dream but we can sometimes learn the wrong lessons I think if we pick out individuals because for example nelson's last signal is quite interesting so nelson obviously comes up with the kind of overall plan for trafalgar which is a good one yeah and then all he does he then stands there on a ship and flies a flag where he says england expects everyone to his duty which is great but apart from that he just simply flies a flag going close with the enemy that is his only instruction from the start of the battle until he dies so he goes close with the enemy i.e if anyone can see this signal just get in amongst it and get close to the enemy and your superior gunnery and your superior seamanship will count. So it's not like during the battle he's running around, you know, like arguably like the Duke of Wellington at the Battle of Waterloo. He's right. making minute dispositions here and there.
0: He's just standing there like a peacock waiting he's standing for there like a peacock. his expert plan to unfold.
1: Well, he's letting his simple but bold plan unfold knowing that the component parts of that plan will act in a way that delivers victory because they are incredibly professional highly trained well resourced individuals and ships capable of making the right decision and to remind them of the right decision he goes remember all my plan depends on is get amongst it yeah close with the enemy if you're not sure what to do go and look at an enemy ship get up close to them and just smash them to bits with your superior cannon fire
0: Dan, thank you so much for this. It's been brilliant and a real pleasure to learn more about Nelson through your eyes and how you see him as a figure um, from the past. So thank you ever so much for giving up some of your time today.
1: Well, thank you, Rebecca Redil. Good luck with the podcast.
0: Thank you. The man who fired the fatal shot was himself gunned down soon after by a British officer named John Pollard. As for Nelson... His body was transported back to England and was held in state within the Painted Hall at Greenwich for three days, where he was visited by 15,000 mourners. On the 9th of January 1806, 32 admirals, more than 100 captains and 10,000 soldiers escorted the coffin in procession from the Admiralty to St Paul's Cathedral, where he was finally interred. He left behind the four-year-old daughter he shared with Emma Hamilton, Horatia, who he'd written to just two days before his death.
1: My dearest Angel, I was made happy by the pleasure of receiving your letter of September 19th, and I rejoice to hear that you are so very good a girl, and love my dear Lady Hamilton who most dearly loves you. Give her a kiss for me. You are ever uppermost in my thoughts. I shall be sure of your
0: prayers for my safety, conquest and speedy return.